This morning, uh, we are going through Romans chapter 4, and at the end, we're going to have some time of prayer, and we, we desperately need it. There's, there's a lot of heaviness on the body, and, and I want you to take courage from the passage, because the Lord has something special for all of us today. It's an intense passage, because it's, you know, as Paul writes Romans, he's, he's going in a legal treatise, and uh, we'll, we'll get through it, but I, I promise you if, you, if you keep your thinking caps on, you're going to be strengthened in your faith. And by the way, this chapter... Um, did more to revolutionize my Christian faith um, at the time of reading than any other passage had ever done. Romans 8 later would go on to be even more profound for me. But it was here that I understood why Christianity is distinct from every other religion in the world and, and why I'm so grateful to be a Christian and how God uh, just touched my heart through this passage. It, and it is, it's, it's wordy. But we'll get through it. So if you have a Bible, open up to Romans 4. If you don't, these fine folks will give you a Bible. Just raise your hand. They'll hand it to you. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Uh, so it's going to be Romans chapter 4. If, if I were to quiz the congregation and say, you know, how are you saved? How are you saved? I, I imagine we get a myriad of answers back. Uh, how how somebody is saved, and um, some people would say, "Well, if we keep the commandments of the Lord," or someone else would say, "Well, you know, faith saves us." Uh, there'd be a myriad of responses that we get in the congregation. Today, we're going to get the answer to it, the proper answer. Um, but I, I like this story that uh, Mark Twain. It's about him talking with a, a very self righteous businessman who was also ruthless. And um, this businessman came up to Mark Twain, and the story goes, and I I have it written down here. It was said that at one time, a self-righteous, ruthless businessman who was well-known once said to writer Mark Twain, before I die, I mean to make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. I will climb Mount Sinai and read the Ten Commandments aloud at the top. And then uh, Mark Twain says, I have a better idea. You should stay in Boston and just keep them. (laughs) Meaning the Ten Commandments. Oh, that was cute. Are we saved by observation of the law? We've gone through this. We're not. We're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And Paul is going to drive this point home with two lives. Two lives that have deeply impacted me. One is Abraham and the other is David. Two men that when we look at their lives, and even Sarah, Abraham's wife, we're going to see ourselves in their story in some capacity that will encourage and strengthen us. And we're going to see clearly depicted Abraham's faith, and there's going to be four aspects of his faith that today we can receive and apply, no matter what we're going through. And it's going to be vital to us because we're all going to get a torpedo to the side of the ship, and we're going to need to stand firm in the midst of a world that just doesn't make any sense. And this is where God gives us faith. And so please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. I'm going to read the entirety of chapter 4 with a couple of comments, Um, but for the most part, I'm just going to read through it. Chapter 4, verse 1, Paul writing by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, What then shall we say that Abraham our father is found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. That's found in Genesis 15. And that's 400 years before the law was ever written, and, and 80 years, were, uh, actually, yeah, 80 years before he'd even been circumcised. So there was no Mosaic law, he hadn't been circumcised yet, and God accredited to him his righteousness in Genesis 15. 
verse 4, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. So if you work for an employer, you get paid for your work. And in America, especially with the Christian work ethic, we tend to believe that we have to work in order to get anything good in life. But then again, salvation is a free gift of God. We don't work for it. He gives it to us, which is what Paul is pointing out here. Verse 5, But to him who does not work but believes on Jesus, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. David is quoted in Psalm 32 that you find in verses 7 and 8 of Romans. It says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. He wrote Psalm 32 after he got caught uh, in adultery with Bathsheba and it also murdered Uriah who was uh, Bathsheba's husband. So he committed murder and adultery, two sins for which there was no sacrifice in all of Israel. He deserved death. And God forgives him, and he writes Psalm 32. Now, by the way, Psalm is a song that would be sung on all the hit stations in Israel. Everyone heard David's psalm. So it's a public profession. He's on the tabloids. And and this was his song that we just read. Now, verse 9. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only? Is it only for the Jew, the one who has the outward markings of a Jew, the circumcision? If you don't know what that is, we'll have to talk later. Or does it also come upon the uncircumcised, the the non-Jew? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. I covered that. He hadn't been circumcised yet. So he's still righteous without that circumcision. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all who believe, though they, were, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. By the way, where circumcision occurs is the organ of the body where you procreate as men. Everyone tracking me? So this is the seed of Abraham traveling, and that's the mark that God would give for those that uh, had trusted him by faith. Verse 12, And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but also who walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. Verse 13, For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. He's saying, you're not saved because you're a Jew either. You're saved by faith. It's not because you observe the law or that you're ethnically connected to a race of people. Verse 16, therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. And that's in Genesis 17. In the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Abraham was promised this when he was 100 years old, that he'd have a son. Yeah, I'm going to go to the doctor and check that out. You know, 100 years old, you're not having any kids. He trusted him, contrary to hope, in hope he believed. So he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken. So so shall your descendants be. Verse 19, and not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body, which was already dead, meaning he had no ability to procreate since he was about 100 years old. And the deadness of Sarah's womb, she was in her 90s. She's not going to have a baby. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief 
but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what God had promised, he was able to perform. And therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus, our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. I'll explain all that momentarily. Lord, we ask your blessing on the study of your word. We thank you, God, for your faithfulness. And Holy Spirit, you promised to lead us into all truth. We know that you desire to lift up the name of Christ, that all men would be drawn unto you. I pray, Lord, that you do just that, and you touch every heart in this room today. I pray that you'd pour your spirit upon this room, that you'd lead us into these truths, that we would not only understand them, but we would, we would apply them, that it would leave just the portion of our head and hit our heart. And I ask, God, that you would do a mighty work to bring and increase our faith. Lord, you say without faith it's impossible to please you. And I pray, God, to each man is given a measure of faith, but you also, as a disciple said, Lord, help our unbelief, increase our faith. And so, Lord, do that. I pray for those who are just dealing with overwhelming circumstances and that, God, you're bigger than all of that. I pray today through your word that they would understand and realize that and hold fast to it and trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, please be seated. The Apostle Paul goes through this depiction of justification by faith. And the word justified, and I've, I've shared this often, it means just as if I'd never sinned. Um, and, and the way that this happens is God is merciful, and he's also just. God is merciful, he's also just. Mercy, real simple definition, mercy is not getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. We deserve death. God gives us life. He's merciful to us. But he's also just. So if the law says the wages of sin is death, then somebody has to die. And that person was Jesus Christ. He died in our place. And because he was without sin and paid the penalty for our sin, covered our iniquity, his righteousness is imputed, put on our account. That term is used over 50 times in the book of Romans. It's put on our account so that when God sees us, he doesn't see us in our sin, which we never stop doing. He sees us in his son's righteousness. And all of our sin, by receiving by faith Christ's sacrifice, all of our sin, past, present, and future, is covered by the blood of Christ. So we're not saved by works. And, and it's so hard for the American mind to comprehend. It's, it's hard for any, any culture to comprehend. We think that you work, and you work hard in order to get anything good in life, including God's salvation. If you work hard enough, God will love you. If you do this, this, and this, God will love you. But God loves you in spite of what you do or you don't do. And his righteousness is put on your account, not because you've earned it, but because you've received this free gift by faith. And in receiving that, there's no boasting. Nobody in the room is better than anybody else. And nobody in the room has a sin so overwhelming that God's grace can't forgive it. And God's mercy can't stop what is about to take place. He's merciful and he's gracious. And he justifies us. And all this occurs by faith. And he uses two examples to drive this point home. And as I said earlier, these two examples couldn't be better ones. At least for me, I, I love both characters in the scriptures. I've done some pretty in-depth studies in relation to their life, the salvation of Abraham, the salvation of David. And, and, and Paul uses both men in this, in this passage to drive the point home. 
He says in verse 3, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and is accounted to him for righteousness. He's quoting in the passage uh, out of Genesis 15. I love Genesis 15. It's one of those most revolutionary uh, passages. In its initial reading, it seems kind of odd, but as you read it more, you go, wow, this is so intense. And, and I'll, uh, I have it here. You can listen. If you want to follow along, you can, but I'm going to read it verbatim. And, and this, is, this is Abraham. Abraham, was, he wasn't born a Jew. He was born Ur of Chaldees. He's Chaldean. Ur of Chaldees was a gated community with running water. It was a beautiful place. And God appeared to Abraham in a dream and he said, leave Ur of Chaldees and leave your family and your kindred and you and your wife go to a land that I'm going to show you. And he sent him up to Canaan. So Abraham goes to his wife and he says, Sarah, we got to bail on Ur of Chaldees. We got to get the Ur Hall and we got to move. I just thought that would be you, Ur, <laughs> threw that in. We have, to, we have to get out of here. Load up the stuff. Well, can I bring my family? No, family has to stay here. So it seems as though Abraham believes God's commandment to him to leave Ur of Chaldees, but he doesn't leave as God commanded. He brings along Lot, his nephew, and he actually brings his father as far as Haran and waits for his father to die. So he's even slack in obeying God's promises. Does that sound like anyone else in the room? Quit looking at me. I'm thinking of all of us. And so they leave, and they get to Canaan. And they get to Canaan. When they get there, there's a drought in the land. There's a famine in the land. And Abraham thinks, we're all going to die here. And so without uh, God telling him, he decides to go to Egypt to go find food. So he heads into Egypt. And just as they get to the outskirts of Egypt, he turns to Sarah, his wife. He says, Sarah, um, listen, Pharaoh is a gnarly guy. And uh, you are beautiful. Most, most Christian women, right? The, the beauty is internal and external. And and and." He says, They're gonna, he's going to want you as his wife, and he's going to kill me because I'm your husband. So what I need you to do to preserve my life is I need you to tell him that I'm your brother and not your husband. Well, listen, God is never going to ask a spouse to lie for another spouse. And Sarah didn't lie because if you follow the genealogy, it's a little strange. It's kind of like Arkansas. But Sarah, <laughs> Sarah was Abraham's half-brother. Uh, half Half-sister, right. Yeah, Sarah was Abraham's half-sister. Um, their family tree didn't branch. I thought I'd throw that out. That didn't work. And actually, starting February 1st, uh, our, we're going to have a national broadcast, and I think we're going to broadcast in Arkansas, so edit that if we can. I'm going to be real cautious from here on out, you know what I'm saying? So, so they, they approach and they get to Egypt and Sarah's like, you know, I, I can tell the truth. I am, I am his sister. Technically, I am his sister. I'm, I'm going to tell the whole truth. He's telling a half lie because he seeks to deceive. I'm just going to obey my husband. So they get there and Pharaoh, sure enough, has eyes for her, doesn't kill Abraham. Instead of killing him and taking uh, Sarah as his wife, because it's a brother, he gives him all kinds of gifts, camels and donkeys and sheep and oxen. It's like giving him Ferraris and Bentleys and all that stuff, and he's just loaded with a grip of stuff. Well, God is looking at it as Pharaoh is moving in on Sarah, and Abraham's keeping his mouth shut, so God bypasses Abraham and plagues Pharaoh, and a plague breaks out in, in Egypt. Pharaoh puts two and two together and goes, wait a minute, I've been duped here. This isn't your sister, this is your wife. 
Get out of my, my country. Get out of here. I don't need you. Take the stuff with you. I've met guys like you, and they're a dime a dozen. I thought you were different. You were talking about a monotheistic God. You were talking about a God of mercy and grace. You were talking about God had given you a vision. You're just a liar. Get out of my country. And Abraham leaves with Sarah and all of the belongings, the camels, the, the goats. I don't know what a camel makes a sound, but they're all moving. And, and I want to stop for a moment because Sarah is part of all this equation. Could you imagine being, you know, a wife of a man that wants you to, that doesn't want to stand in your defense and stand as your husband and defend your honor? A, a husband who, who doesn't have character and isn't, isn't willing to tell the truth? That's, that's Abraham. And Sarah's looking at him going, you know, I left my family, you brought Lot. I left my family, you brought your dad. I went to Canaan. I left all the comfort of Ur of Chaldees. And now we're here, and you, won't even, you don't even have a spine to stand up for me. And now I'm in, absolutely embarrassed, and the entire nation of Egypt is laughing at us while we're walking back to that desert that you said God called us to. I imagine that's all going on in her heart. It wouldn't mind if I were her, thinking, what a pathetic loser this guy is. Spineless coward. And as they're walking back and she's listening to the bleeding of the sheep and the, you know, the, the neighing of the donkeys and all of the like, seeing all the possessions that he, he garnered while lying at her expense, that's going through her mind, frustrated, upset, angry. But we see a fascinating concept in Peter where it says of Sarah that she obeyed Abraham and called him Lord, whose daughters you are, the scripture says, speaking of Sarah and to women. She still called him Lord. She may have been internalizing it, but on the exterior, she said yes. And she did as was requested. Walking back silently, what she didn't do is she didn't go, you loser, you're so pathetic, you're worthless, I can't believe. She didn't do any of that. Just walked back. And it was a quiet walk home, I imagine. It got worse. That wasn't the last time that Abraham tried to pawn his wife off as his sister. He did it again. It gets worse. When they finally get back to Canaan and they're there, Abraham gets this dream in Genesis 15, and, and God has told him his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky, as numerous as the sands on the seashore. And he's telling everybody, we're going to have an heir. Now, they have no children. Sarah is completely barren. Not only in their culture was it bad to be a woman, but it was bad to be a woman that couldn't give birth to a son if you just gave birth to daughters, you were less than adequate. And if you couldn't give birth at all and you were barren, you were a penny looking for change. That's Sarah. And to make matters worse, Abraham's going around telling everybody, we're going to have kids, we're going to have abundance, stars of the sky, God's giving me a promise. This guy is whacked. And not only that, he's, he's, he's proclaiming this promise while he's 90-something years old. We're going to have kids and it's going to be unbelievable. Where do you see them? And Sarah's 30 years past menopause, going, I guess God's spoken to the man. Okay. And she's having to deal with it. Sarah, where's your kids? <laughs> and, and God gives Abraham a dream. He's struggling at this point. His faith is wavering, just like all of ours does at a time. After these things, the word of the Lord came in Genesis 15 to Abram in a vision saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield and your exceedingly great reward. 
But Abram said, Lord, what will you give me seeing I go childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? I've got a servant in the house. He, and, and, and by law, he's going to inherit everything. Is this the one you're talking about? Because I'm beyond the ability to have kids and so is my wife and you've promised me and, and I, I need a sign. You've got to give me something. Then Abram said, look, you've given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is going to be my heir. He's been born in my house, but he's not been born of, of my loins. And behold, the word of the Lord came to Abram saying, this one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. It's going to be your own kid out of Sarah's womb. God speaks this to him. And then he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. He said, so shall your descendants be. There was no light pollution back then. He walks out in the night sky in the Middle Eastern you know, light, no moon. Just, I mean, it, it looks like there's, there's holes in the floor of heaven and lights are just shining down in massive multitude. And he's just stunned by it. Massive multitude, that's an alliteration. I've been practicing. And it's just stunning. And as he looks out there, it says, and this is the key verse, and this is all of Romans 4. The key verse in Genesis 15 is in Romans 4, and it's verse 6. It says, and he believed in the Lord, and God accounted it to Abraham as righteousness. No Mosaic law, no circumcision, didn't even have a kid yet, but you trust me. And because you trust me, by faith, you have been made righteous. Righteous means right with God. People say, I don't have a religion, I have a relationship. That's, that's nice, a little pithy, but it's nice. I get what you mean. But the truth is, religion means relungari in the Latin, means to relink, reconnect with God. And, and, and Abraham, right there in verse 6 of Genesis 15, reconnected with God, relinked. God says, I give you my righteousness, I put it on your account. You trust me by faith that there'll be a sacrifice. You've, you've heard all about Adam and you've heard about the pro-evangelicum and everything. And, and the time is going to come when there, there will be animals that will be sacrificed waiting for the sinless lamb of God. And by faith, you're waiting for a point in time. And, and you trust me and I've given you righteousness as a result of your faith that you believe that I will cleanse you of all unrighteousness, past, present, and future by the sacrifice of my son. And that's, chat, that's verse six. Then God said to him, I am the Lord. Abraham, I'm the Lord. I can do this. I know you're old. I know Sarah's old. I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur of Chaldees to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? Lord, I, I need a little more than this. He said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer. And he, and he says, and a three-year-old female goat. And he lists all these animals. He says, cut them in half and set the parts on either side. And so you cut them in half and you have one end of the animal here and the other end of the animal here and the two gaping wounds of the animal, the blood is pouring out. Have you ever seen an animal that's been cut? All the blood, just massive amounts of blood pouring in into this gap between the two pieces. And, and Abraham lines them up and he cuts them in half and the blood's pouring in between them. And he says, well, Abraham goes, oh, I get it. Anyone in the Middle East would understand it. What he's saying to him is, Abraham, we're going to cut a covenant. We're going to make an agreement. We're going to enter into an agreement, a binding legal agreement that anyone in the Middle East would understand. Ken, stand up, would you? So the heifer's been cut in half, and the, the female goat's cut in half. The blood's pouring down. We're going to go into business together. Come on over here. You and I are going to go into business together. We've made an agreement. It's a company. I have 75% share. You have 25%. But, I, you know, you're not a very good negotiator. Anyways. And it, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and, and the blood is poured here, and you and I have, have come to this agreement we have it all written out. And so we bind together and we walk through the blood. 
Sorry about that. And what we're saying to each other, as we look at the blood on our feet and the blood everywhere, we're saying to each other, if you break the covenant or I break the covenant, may this happen to us. Right? Deal? Okay, sit down. (laughs) 25%. And those are minor shares, by the way. So anyone coming along, seeing these animals, would come up to Abraham and go, Abraham, you're cutting a covenant. Yes, I am. I'm cutting a covenant. That's right. I'm cutting a covenant. Where's your business partner? He's not here yet. Who is it? Mm, That's the Lord. Okay. Wacko, man. You're cutting a covenant with God. Is that right? Yes, I am. I'm waiting. He's going to show up, and we're going to walk through those. And so what happens is, Abraham's tired, and he's waiting for God to show up. And all of a sudden, these vultures start descending down on the carcasses and start pulling pieces off. And, 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 and these, these, if you've ever seen these birds of prey or these vultures, uh, the, the, the scavengers, they, they're fearless. You brush them away, and they just jump away a couple feet until you walk away, and they just jump back, and they begin eating. And they don't care. I mean, they're, they're in front of hyenas, and they're eating the same thing they are, just kind of looking at them going, yeah, I'll do Okay, yeah. And they're, they're fearless. And these birds of prey are just, just chomping on, on the covenant. And Abraham is frustrated. He's trying to brush him away. Get away, get away, get away. And he's, he's pushing these birds away, and he's waiting for God to show up, and the sun's beginning to go down. And he's exhausted. He's absolutely exhausted. And his flesh is worn out. And at 90, there's not a lot left. And he's just so tired. He just says, I, okay, I'm just going to sit down, take a little nap till the Lord gets here. And then, and then we're going to cut that. He just closes his eyes. And the scripture says he goes into a deep sleep. The idea is it's not the light sleep. It's a heavy REM sleep where you drool the ha 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 ha. I was watching my dog last night in REM. He's you know, barking and running in his sleep. That's Abraham. He falls into a deep sleep. And in the midst of this sleep, a horror and a darkness falls on him. And it's a dream that encompasses the entire history of Israel that's about to come. It's the future of Israel. They go into bondage in Egypt and all the things. And he sees all this and it's encapsulated in this dream. And, and in the midst of this dream, what happens is, while Abram is asleep, in the midst of this intense dream of what's going to happen with this promise from God, it says, it came to pass, verse 17, when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between the pieces. So God shows up and goes, and passes through the pieces. And on the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying, to your descendants, I give this land from the river Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, Kenites, Canaanites, Kadamites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Termites, the Girgashites, and all the Jebusites. I'm giving it all to you. And here's what God said. I don't need you, Abraham. I'm making a promise, and I'm the only one who's responsible for keeping it. You have no ability to do it. You can't even stay awake. You can't even stave off the vultures. I'm going to save you by faith, and I'm going to be the one that keeps my covenant with you. Even when you're unfaithful, I'll be faithful. And Abraham believed and was accredited to him as righteousness. Done. It's by faith. Abraham couldn't work it, neither could you. You're not saved because you're a good person. You're not saved because you're a moral person. You're saved because Christ is righteous and he died in your place and in mine. We receive that by faith. And we trust in the Lord in relation to it. Now, 
is immediately after this occurs, what's fascinating is Abraham has been promised descendants. He trusts the Lord, right? I mean, if I saw a burning fire pot, I'm in. God speaks to me and shows me I'm in. But he has a lapse of faith, just like every one of us does. And in the lapse of faith, I'll never forget this part. I love this story. Sarah, his wife, comes to him. She's been hearing all the news, and everybody's been bagging on her because she's so old and she didn't have a kid, and they're laughing at what Abraham's been saying. And she's finally at a place where her faith is struggling. She's struggling with her husband. She's struggling with God coming through. It just seems as though this is overwhelming. All the evidence points to God not being faithful. There's no way I could even envision and wrap my mind around it. I mean, it's, it's overwhelming. And she comes to her husband. She says, seeing that God has withheld a child from my womb, I think what you need to do... It's go sleep with Hagar, the Egyptian handmaid that we brought when we came back. And she was this, you know, young hottie. And, uh, and, and she's, it, it, it's legal in Middle Eastern custom that he's allowed to have a, a child by somebody in his, you know, employ, employment. And Sarah says, seeing that God has withheld a child from my womb, you might as well go sleep with Hagar. Hagar. And Abraham goes, that is a great idea, woman. Well, cut my legs off and call me shorty. I think you are, I think you're, you're, you're firing on all pistons. Where is she? Right? And pop some Yohimbe and then they, you know, I'm not sure what that is. I just read it somewhere. And, and he goes in and he sleeps with Hagar, the handmaid, and she becomes pregnant by Abraham. And, and, and as this child starts to grow in the womb, Hagar comes walking out going, I have a baby and Sarah does. And she's rubbing her belly and just giving her the eye that I think some women can do to other women and make them feel terrible. And Sarah's just feeling like a penny looking for change. And she just feels like the butt of the joke. And finally, she's had enough. And she turns to her husband. She says, this is your fault. This is upon you. Most guys would be like, wait a minute, hang on, woman. You told me to go sleep with her. I know, that's what I said. It's not what I meant. <laughs> well, what did you mean? What I meant was, I was giving you an opportunity to tell me I was special. <laughs> I have been listening to all these women say bad things about me, and I am tired of being the butt of the joke, and I figured if I'd give you an opportunity and just set it up for you, I could have made it more clear. And you, the big man who's given the vision in her of Chaldees, and I traveled with you, and I've done all these things, and God told you your descendants would be as numerous as the stars of the sky. I know what the promise is, that the child would come from my womb. And I just was struggling, and I wanted you to remind me of it. I didn't want you to go sleep with her. Abraham's like, okay, let me see if I got this straight. You said, but you, oh man, I blew this. Yes, you did. Yes, you did, mister. In a big way. Because Ishmael would end up being the Islamic world, Isaac, the son of the promise, where we have the Western world and, and, and Judaism, and they're at war with each other, all because, ready? Abraham didn't listen to his wife. And the guys are going, wait a minute, she, didn't, she wasn't clear. Oh, Bible says husbands will with your wife with understanding. She wanted to be reassured. And the Bible says, husbands, bathe your wife in the water of the word. Remind her of the promises. Encourage her. Strengthen her. Strengthen yourself. And, 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 and 
God still accredited to Abraham as righteousness. I can relate to this guy. Screws up left and right. And if that's not enough, God brings in, through Paul's hand, another one, David. David, David and Goliath. Oh, great, you know, story. Yeah, but you go further into Samuel, and you got David and Bathsheba. He commits adultery with Uriah's wife, and then murders him, and lies about it. A murderer, a liar, an adulterer. Nathan, the prophet, confronts him, tells him a story about a guy who took another man's goat, and and it's just such a tragic story, and David just is infuriated by the story. He says, that man must die. And Nathan stops in the middle of the story because he's just reeled him in. He goes, you're the man. All of a sudden, David realizes that the secret's out. He could have killed Nathan and gotten away with it, but instead he humbled himself and he said, okay, I'm the man. And we see Psalm 32 quoted here where David writes this song that's played on all of Israeli hit radio about his confession. And the righteousness comes that God's grace is sufficient. David trusted, and so much so that the Lord would cause Jesus to come from his lineage. Do you realize what filth God redeems? He made me a pastor. That just baffles my mind. He saved us. And, and I can relate to David's failure. I can't relate to God's blessing. I can relate to, to not listening like Abraham and, and facing the consequences of my sins. But what's fascinating, God even takes the consequences of your sin and uses it together for good, which we're going to see in Romans 8 later. It's, it's unbelievable. I've got a few moments left, and I just want to close with, with a couple of thoughts in relation to the passage this morning. Because the, the scripture goes on after it describes Abraham and it describes David. It says that the promise was granted through faith. And this idea is that we, we receive this salvation from the Lord by faith. It's not of works, it's a gift of God lest any man should boast. And it was written for our sake that this, this righteousness would be imputed to us, to us who would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that, that God raised him from the dead and delivered him up for our offenses. He was raised for our justification. We have to embrace that and grasp it. Abraham had to do it. David had to do it. We have to do it. And as we, we see this, I wanted to, to point out, and, and I, I love what this author says. He says, why did God establish the principle of righteousness by faith? And he says, it's the only way that my relationship with God can remain constant in spite of my human failures. You see, Abraham fell asleep. God remained faithful. In spite of my failures, God's still faithful. It has to be by faith. If it's based on us working, we're going to blow it. When I work for an employer, he is legally obligated to pay me my wages. But a right relationship with God is a gift that I do not, cannot, and never will deserve. This gift demonstrates the grace of God as he gives me what I could never earn, perfect righteousness. This is what separates Christianity from every religion in the world. Then what are my works as a believer? Just the glorious and natural response of my heart to the goodness, grace, and love of God. See, Paul said in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, he said, the love of Christ compels or constrains me. Love drives me to do whatever I can for the Lord. I love in, in, in 1 Corinthians 13, it's a verse that's often read at weddings, 
And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profiteth me nothing. Without love, you're a clanging cymbal and a sounding brass. The greatest of these is love. It's on the inscription in my ring. And I love that because I don't go home to my wife every night because I wear a ring or that I said words in front of a minister. I go home every night because I love her. And this is what's transformed this religion from any religion in the world. We don't serve a capricious God that we have to earn favor with him. He loved us first and we respond by loving him back. We obey the commandments of God, not out of obligation to be saved, but out of adoration because we are saved. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance and to change. This is what's so remarkable about Christianity. We think it's something that we've earned. And to the Jews, circumcision was the most important ritual a man could experience. And, and according to their teaching, God wouldn't accept you if, you if you were an uncircumcised man. And what Paul is saying, and he's pointing out so clearly... That faith, not circumcision, gave Abraham his standing before God. The circumcision was just a a mark of what he'd already done in his heart. God wants our heart. God credited his faith for righteousness while Abraham was still uncircumcised. 400 years before the law was ever given. And I just close with four simple things, four keys to Abraham's faith that I want you to appropriate and apply for your life for mine and if no one gets it but me then we're all doing fine but I pray you all get it four areas of faith that Abraham applied number one Abraham ignored the physical limitations of the situation that was the first key to Abraham's faith he ignored the physical limitations I like what this author says he says whenever I'm faced with a problem I usually try to work out my own solution as long as I can devise a plan I feel confident However, when a situation seems to have no solution, I start to worry. If I can't figure it out, how will God be able to solve it? Too often we trust in human evaluations, the analysis from the laboratory. The tumor is malignant. It was a hard week for the body of Christ and God speak. A lot of daunting news from very educated doctors. And should the word of malignancy come, we panic and give up all hope. There's no known cure. Devastates us. And unlike Abraham, if we fall prey to that, we're only seeing with human possibilities. God's bigger than all that. Could you imagine Sarah going to her doctor saying, I want to have a baby? What would the doctor say? You're 30 years past menopause, woman. There's there's no no physical possibility ever that that will happen. Ever. You're dreaming, woman. It's not going to happen. Abraham, going for his annual checkup, saying, you know, Sarah and I want to have a baby. He's 100. You got any vitamins or anything I can take, doc? Forget it. It's not going to happen, Abraham. He ignored the physical limitations because God is bigger. Listen to this. When God is the working agent, any talk of limitations or difficulty is absurd. How big is your God? 
Faith is having great need and taking great risk. Trusting him. You know, for those of you who struggle with it, write this down. You can read it later. I don't have time to go through it. 2 Kings chapter 7, verses 1 through 20. 2 Kings chapter 7, verses 1 through 20. Physical limitations were leveled on the nation of Israel and nobody thought anything could change and it did in one night. Take a look at it. The second key to Abraham's faith is that he didn't stagger in unbelief at the promises of God. The Bible says that God has given us exceedingly great and precious promises. Do you know what they are? Have you read them? If you're going through a trial, pick up God's promises little book and read them. One of these promises is, my God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of Christ, according to his glory and the riches of Christ. That's Philippians 4.19. Abraham didn't waver. He was strong in faith. He gave glory to God. You see that in verse 20 of this chapter. The third one, the key to Abraham's faith, and listen to me, He was praising and thanking God for a son even before Sarah was pregnant. Give thanks in all things. for This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Thank him for the answer to the promise before the promise has been fulfilled. This story touched my life so profoundly that I've quoted it often and I've gotten some of the numbers wrong. I've done my best to do it. And I thought today I would just read it verbatim. It's a man who's since gone to be with the Lord and it's a reason why I'm a Calvary Chapel pastor. At the time of the reading, I was a Congregationalist youth minister and I was going to a Mennonite Brethren Seminary. And when I read this man's life and his story, I was so deeply touched. It was Chuck Smith's story, the man who started Calvary Chapel. He wrote this. Years ago, while pastoring in another area, I was working at a supermarket to meet the family's needs. We had three children, and the church only paid $20 a week. My mother-in-law had died in Phoenix, and we went there to take care of the funeral arrangements. And while I was gone, my union dues at the supermarket lapsed. When I returned to pay them, the union had attached a $50 fine. I couldn't afford to pay the fine plus the dues. I was in a bind because the union wouldn't let me work, and I couldn't get the money without the work. Since my income from the supermarket had stopped, things were pretty tough and I became discouraged. I've always believed in keeping my accounts up to date as a witness for Jesus Christ and now for the first time in my life, I started receiving letters from my creditors. One morning I got up and I totaled our debts and they came to $416 and I laid them before the Lord, but I was very disheartened. Where in the world am I ever going to get $416? About that time, the phone rang, and I picked it up, and a friend said, Chuck, I'm calling to let you know that I put a check in the mail for you. I sent it special delivery, and you should get it tomorrow morning. It's for $425. Was I ever elated? I ran into the kitchen, and I grabbed Kay, my wife, and I danced her around the room, and I was praising the Lord. Victory! Bless God! Hallelujah! We'll be out of debt. We even have enough money to go out for dinner. Later, after I'd settled down again, God began speaking to me. Chuck, how do you know that he sent the money to you? Lord, 
I've known my friend for many years. He wouldn't call me unless he'd done it. I, I, I trust his word, Lord. Very interesting, said the Lord to my heart. You had my word this morning that I would provide the money, but I didn't see you dancing your wife around the kitchen. Instead, you were down in the mouth and blue, and now that you have a man's word for the money, you're all excited. Tell me, Chuck, whose words are greater, his or mine? I had to repent. My faith didn't include praising God for his promise before it was fulfilled. We often become defeated and discouraged even though we have God's guarantee of victory and success. Abraham was strong in faith and gave glory to God before Sarah conceived because he had the promise of God. If you have a torpedo to the side of your ship, I want you to start reading the promises of God and trusting him on behalf of you and your family. Then the final key to faith that Abraham applied was being fully persuaded that what God had promised he was able to perform. Again, how big is your God? Is your God able? Many times God is too small for our problems because he's the product of our imaginations. The God of the scriptures is eternal and almighty. He measures the heavens in the span of his hand. Isaiah says the nations are as a drop of a bucket and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Oh, the greatness of the God we serve, now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think, Ephesians 3.20. Abraham simply believed that God would fulfill his promise, and therefore his faith was imputed, credited to him for righteousness. It wasn't written for his sake alone, but for ours. The God who saved you, who you've trusted in, is also able to deliver you in the midst of all the trials and use them together for good. I'm, I'm, I'm short on my message because I want to spend some time in prayer. There's a member of our congregation who's a small business owner and he and his wife own a business. Right here in our own complex, they do airplane panels. Two children. He went into work one day and two members of our congregation, two of our fellows were there. He just finished driving his kids to school, working in his shop, had a seizure and collapsed. The men were there, got to the hospital. After diagnosis and treatment and surgery, he has geoblastoma, I think is how it's pronounced. It's brain cancer. No known cure. You want to talk about a torpedo to the side of the ship. And they're here today. And there's no greater prayer than intercessory prayer. I want God to heal him. Please, Lord. And I want his peace to come upon them. How big is your God? There's others of you in this room that you have had torpedoes and you're struggling and there's heartache. This is a time of prayer. We're going to have the prayer team up here. We're going to start with a song that's soft so we can hear each other when we're praying. And I'll have oil up here to pray for some of you that just have been hit. And I want you to apply these truths of faith that Abraham had. Look, we're all struggling. We all fall short. We serve a big God who deeply loves us. And he'll see us to the end. And he'll work everything together for good. And he's faithful. And he's just. And he's merciful. And he's gracious. And he's our dad. And he loves his kids. And so if you need prayer today,
as much as this passage touched me 22 years ago. I pray it's done the same for you today. Let's pray. Lord, as we prepare our hearts to worship you and to spend time in a a season of prayer, I ask, Lord, that you would grant wisdom to those men and women who would volunteer to pray with others. That you'd, you'd grant faith and courage to those who need prayer. And that to the body of Christ, you'd unify us to intercede at your throne of grace on your behalf and, and ask that you would heal, comfort, strengthen, bless. Lord, you say that every man is given a measure of faith, but you also point out that the disciples ask you to increase their faith. And God, through these trials, you say that it's the perfecting of our faith. And Lord, there are a lot of folks today that really need a shot of faith. They need to be able to see you and trust you, even when the physical limitations seem to be overwhelming them and, and no known cure and malignant and all these burdensome words from man tend to shrivel us in our faith. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you'd strengthen us, encourage us, and bless us. Help us, Lord, to minister to one another by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.